Today, we pick up the Exodus story from chapter 35. This is where Moses calls for a special offering to build the tabernacle, this big, posh tent uh, that God had instructed them to make. And I'd suggest that this turns out to be the most remarkable outpouring of generosity recorded in the Bible. I mean, you know it's been a successful special offering when you're told, stop giving. We've got enough already. Well, that's exactly what happened in these chapters. I'm going to read some selected verses and fill in the gaps as we get an overview of these two chapters. So starting in Exodus 35, verse 4. Let me put my glasses on, I can read it. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering. And then he lists all the the articles and the materials and the bling that they needed for this project. And then we get down to verse 10. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. And again, we get this list of the furniture and the furnishings and the utensils they're going to need to make together. Then down to verse 20. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the sacred garments. So again, we get a whole list of different groups of people and what they brought to the party. And then verse 29 is a really helpful summary verse. It says this. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Then we get another lift of some of the creative gifts and artistic skills that God gives certain individuals. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 36 and verse 2. Uh, then Moses summoned Bezalel and Ahiatlab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary, and the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning so that the skilled workers who were doing the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because they had already had Uh, was enough, more than enough, to do all of the work. I just pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our wallets to grow in generosity. And I pray that through this passage, you will teach us and move our hearts to give generously. Amen. You know, their generosity, I think, is quite remarkable, particularly when you consider their situation. 
I mean, they were ex-slaves. And an ex-slave doesn't have much by way of their own possessions. Not only that, but they were nomadic scavengers. They were going around the wilderness just eking out a living. They didn't have businesses or the ability to trade or generate wealth in any way. And we also know they've just given really generously towards this golden calf back in chapter 33. And what had happened to all that gold? Well, Moses had melted it down, he'd grounded it to dust, he'd scattered it in their drinking water. It'd gone. Unless, of course, you're prepared to pan for gold in the latrines. And, and finally, their life was precarious. I mean, they lived below the breadline at times. They were on the equivalent of lower than minimum wage. They were just about getting by, and only then sometimes with God's miraculous provision. They had no timetable for when they would arrive at this promised land with all its fabled honey and milk that was meant to be flowing. Actually, in addition, this was going to add to their workload. I mean, they had to up sticks and carry everything they owned every time the cloud or the pillar of fire moved. And now they'd have this whopping great tent to not only build, but to carry around with them in the desert. Your situation may have some echoes of their situation. You may think, now's not the time. I'm not the person to be uh, uh, considering my generosity. Well... God spoke to them and moved them to give. So let's look a little bit deeper. I think the big question that strikes me when I look at this passage is, is why? Why were they so remarkably generous? What was it that motivated them? I'm going to answer that firstly in the negative. Some reasons that I think didn't motivate them. They weren't motivated by, for example, obligation. They didn't have to give. And I know Exodus is full of laws and there were rules about tithing and taxes and offerings, but this is not one of those moments. The author is repeatedly emphasising this is a free will offering. People could choose to, to give as much or as little as they wanted, even nothing if they were not moved to do so. And when describing their response, the, the, the author seven times refers to their willing hearts. Their willing hearts. And that's really in contrast to Aaron, who kind of insisted really they all give up their gold and their earrings towards the golden calf just a couple of chapters earlier. Well, secondly, I suggest that this wasn't a means for appeasing God. They weren't trying to atone for their sins. Moses, as a type of Christ, had stepped in and mediated between God and the people. And, and the, the sin of idolatry that they'd just committed was dealt with. Uh, the covenant had been restored. And so there was no need now through their giving and their generosity to, to, to try and even retrospectively deal with their sin. That had been dealt with. Our giving can never atone for sin. The only giving that ever atones sin is that of Christ himself who gave himself and his life so generously at the cross. Neither was this coercion. 
They hadn't been pressurized into giving. There was, there was no emotional manipulation going on. I find verse 20 really telling. We're told that the community, having heard this appeal, withdrew from Moses' presence. They took time to consider the appeal, to weigh up their response, perhaps to chat about it amongst family and friends, and then to make a plan completely under their own volition. Again, this is probably contrary to any manual for maximising charitable giving, and I'm sure those books are out there. They would say, get people in the moment. Don't let them walk away. Uh, that's why we have chuggers on the high street, and that's why we have telethons on the TV, because as soon as you allow time between the appeal and the response, the intent can drift away. But that's not the case in this scenario. And finally, finally, they weren't motivated by the prospect of prosperity. There was no promise of health and wealth attached to their response to this special offering. So again, it, it highlights, well, then why? Why were they so generous that they had to be restrained from giving any more on this occasion? Well, I'd suggest it includes three things. It includes the motivation of God's grace, and God's vision, and God's spirit. So let's look at each of those in turn. I think as the Exodus story, and of course this was this is an account, this is history, they went through this. As it went on, they got a greater and greater understanding of God's grace towards them. They'd been rescued from slavery, they'd, they'd escaped through the Red Sea, they'd been given all this provision, the promises of what was to come, and, and again, they'd had another revelation of the extent of God's grace. They deserved severe punishment. They deserved death for their idolatry with the golden calf. And there had been some punishment, but not to the level that was really warranted. But not only that, God recommitted himself to the, his covenant promise, although they'd broken their part of the bargain to, to, to lead them to the promised land, but also that his presence would go with them. What grace. I think they'd got another glimpse again of God's remarkable love towards them. And I do believe there's this direct correlation between our understanding of God's grace and our generosity. The greater, the more aware we become of God's grace, the, the more generous we are able to be. I remember a story in the Gospels in Luke chapter 7, for example, where we hear about a woman who had this very expensive bottle of perfume. And I mean, the footnote tells us it, it was worth a year's wages. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've never bought a bottle of perfume that's that expensive. I've not bought many bottles of perfume at all. Uh, and some saw this, the extravagance as she broke the whole bottle and poured it out all over Jesus as he, he was reclining at the meal. And they thought, this is a waste. What, what else could we have done with that resource? Well, Jesus corrects them. And he does so using a parable, uh, comparing two people, someone who'd been forgiven a debt of millions and someone who'd been given, uh, forgiven a debt of just hundreds. And, and he said this, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And I think by implication, therefore, whoever has been forgiven much, loves much, becomes much more generous. But the reality is, 
those of us in Christ, we have all been forgiven lots. We were all in debt by millions. Although some of us thought perhaps we're only in debt by hundreds. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, still outside of our ability to pay, but kind of probably only just. I think some are, are acutely aware of how much God's grace has forgiven them right at the start of their Christian lives. I think, to be honest, some of us, including myself, have had to grow in our understanding and awareness of just how much God has forgiven me. I think that's what's quite healthy about still reading the law of Moses. It's good for us as believers in Jesus. So I'd encourage you uh, to continue or pick up or start the Bible reading plan through Exodus that accompanies this series. But don't stop there. Go on and read through the following books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Yes, there are lots of law in there, but I find that every page, it gives me a greater awareness, an understanding of, a, of another whole list of things that God has forgiven me for, some of which I was oblivious to, completely ignorant of. And it gives me a greater understanding of his grace. It keeps me an understanding of just how depraved and desperately in need of a saviour I was before I came to Christ. I was aware of some of it, but not the half of it. I think the language of Exodus 35 and 36 is, is very similar to the language you find in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. These are passages that Jim Partridge preached on uh, only a few Sundays ago as part of our New Ground Sunday. And I wouldn't be surprised if these chapters in Exodus uh, weren't in the mind of Paul when he described the generosity of the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians. I mean, the same tone, willing, joyful generosity you find in both. And to help unlock uh, their generosity... Paul reminds the Corinthians of this. He says, for you know the grace. You, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. Spiritually rich in all the many blessings that Christ's generosity has given to us. You see, knowing God's grace, just how much we've been forgiven, I believe is the hotbed for generosity. That's number one. Secondly, I think at this point, the Israelites have begun to grasp the full extent of God's vision. They were motivated by God's vision. They'd caught a glimpse of the big picture of the ultimate purpose of what God was doing on planet Earth. And it excited them. And they wanted to give their all to it. You see, God's vision in Exodus is about more than simply, dare I say, rescuing people from slavery. However compassionate that is. God was doing more than simply building a nation. However civilised that is, his vision was more than revealing himself through his chosen people. However globally missional that is. God's vision in Exodus is that he would dwell 
amongst his people. You see, what is the main event of Exodus, you might ask? Is it the burning bush? Is it the, uh, is it the Passover? Is it, is it the escape through the Red Sea? Is it, is it Mount Sinai? Is it the giving of the law? I suggest to you none of those things, however wonderful they may be. It is the building of the tabernacle that God may dwell amongst them. That's the main event. We're just about getting there in our Exodus series. You know, there are more chapters about the tabernacle in Exodus than anything else. It's so important that the Holy Spirit is ensured that a description of the tabernacle has been included twice in the book of Exodus. Once from the, if you like, from the inside out, given the architectural uh, kind of design, and secondly, later, uh, kind of giving us the, the, more, the surveyor's builder's report, building it step by step from beginning to end. But it's mainly about the purpose of the tabernacle that we mustn't miss. When, when God first gives the instructions for how to build it to Moses back in Exodus chapter 25, he said this, make the sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. And then having given them all the, or given Moses anyway, all the detailed instructions, he reiterates this vision. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. That's the whole purpose of the rescue from Egypt, that God might dwell with them. And you know, when once they'd followed all these instructions and set up the tabernacle just so, just as God had asked them to do, we then read uh, at the very end of Exodus chapter 40, like a crescendo, that at that time, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We're still building up to the main event. But you know, like any good yarn, uh, and Exodus is a good yarn, it is a story that fits within a bigger story. There's a bigger story about God dwelling, wanting to dwell among his people. It all starts, of course, back in the Garden of Eden. There we have Adam and Eve enjoying walking with God on a perfect planet. But then they and all of us since have been barred from that idyll because of our association with Adam's sin. But God's plan had always been to restore Eden. Not just so that, again, there was another perfect creation, but so that, again, in, in, in its fullness, God can dwell and live with men and women in a perfect paradise. And that is what the, the tabernacle, with all its artistry and beauty, all its precision was prophetically pointing towards. That's the vision that gripped the Israelites so much that they responded in overwhelming generosity. It's the meta-narrative of the Bible. And that meta-narrative is most clearly crystallised, if you like, in the coming of Jesus Christ. God as man flesh and the divine living together as one. And now us, believers in Christ, those who are living under the grace of Jesus, our bodies, 
become, we're told, temples of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 16. That's, that's the argument Paul uses for why sexual immorality is so inappropriate for us as believers. It's because our bodies, this flesh and blood, it's fragile and finite and falling apart, but, but it has become the dwelling place of God on earth. And I think even more so as, as the community of God's people, the church, we have now become together the dwelling place of God on earth. Ephesians 2, for example, there are many of these in the New Testament, explains it's in him, in Christ, that the whole building, not talking about the bricks and mortar, talking about the flesh and bones, talking about the living stones that make up God's church, his people, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Where do you find God on earth? Where does God live? Not just in heaven, but on earth. Well, he lives with his people, within the church, amongst us, as we gather and build community together, more so than God is in nature you can see echoes of God, but he's not in nature. He's in the church. And I think the Israelites just caught a glimpse of that. I mean, we've got so much more that's happened since that can help us understand this vision. But somehow, in the blueprints for this tabernacle, in the, in the textile patterns that they were to cut out and embroider, they saw something and it prompted them to give. And I think it's the same for us today. If we catch something of this bigger vision in the blueprints of our New Testament for church life, in, in, in the patterns we see in the early church, then I think we also will be prompted to replicate their generosity. It's why we're so committed to local church. It's why we're looking to extend our resources and help and, and fund uh, uh, new venues, to see Croydon venue of every day kind of get increasingly established again, to see in time uh, a Kingston venue relaunched. It's why we're committed to every day online. It's why we want to play our part in an apostolic family of churches that are seeing, seeing the gospel extend around the world. Why? Because we want more and more places around the planet for people to, to, to dwell with God, for God to be evident and amongst us in the world. And thirdly, I feel that they were motivated by God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit was, I think, extremely active in chapters 35 and 36 of Exodus. I think verse 21 in chapter 35, for example, is really telling. It says this, Everyone who was willing, that's the human part, they were willing, and whose heart moved them, that's God's part, that's the divine, that's the Holy Spirit, came and brought an offering to the Lord for this work, for, his, for the service and for all the garments they had to make. Yes, on, on one hand, they gave absolutely voluntarily. It was completely their decision. It was their choice. Yet, on the other side of the coin, it was God who moved their hearts 
by the Holy Spirit. And then we're told explicitly the Holy Spirit gifted certain individuals to do the, the, the craft work, the artistry, the carpentry that was going to be required to a level no one had naturally learnt and also have the ability to pass it on to others. You see, the, the Bible talks of many principles about giving. But I think the one word to describe New Testament giving is this, generosity. That trumps all the others. And despite being in the Old Testament, I think these chapters, Exodus 35 and 36, they, they, they teach us a lot about how to cultivate a generous heart. And when thinking about giving, I don't think we should be starting with a formula or an absolute amount. It's not time to get the calculator out and count the beans. No, because giving is not to be motivated by obligation or coercion. It's not to be motivated by trying to please God or, or secure some prosperity. Now, when it comes to giving, it's good to start with the heart. And I believe that generosity springs from a heart that knows God's grace knows God's vision and knows God's spirit. And growing in your understanding, in my understanding of those three things, growing in my experience of God's grace and God's vision and God's spirit, I believe will be the catalyst to generosity. To the levels where we're told, stop, stop giving. Go and find something else to give to because we have more than enough. And only then can we be open, I believe, to God's specific direction in terms of what we give from our treasure, from our talent, from our time to contribute to this wonderful vision of seeing the dwelling place for God established on earth. Amen.